Welcome to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Katrina. And this is our eighth episode of Unfurling, which we're almost in double digits, so it's exciting. And this episode is all about place. Um, And that is a huge topic. When we were speaking before this episode, we realised, you know, actually, we probably had enough content to fill out, you know, a show that could have been three hours long. Um, And that would have been fun for nobody. So (laughs) we're going to try and filter it down a bit. And we're going to think in a moment about some different ways of looking at place and and what place means. But we thought we'd start just briefly with a couple of um, personal connections to the concept of place, what it means to us and why we're doing this now. So place for me, I, I say the word and I think of lots of things. I think right now I'm in Devon, which is where I grew up. I lived away for quite a long time and now I'm back. So a sense of place and a sense of home, and they're not always the same thing, but for me, home and place are connected when I think of Devon. Um, It's in the southwest of the UK, for those of you who are um, not in the UK. Um, I remember some years back, I was working for a magazine based in North Devon um, called Resurgence. And at the time, it had a section called A Sense of Place. Mm. Um, And at the time, I found that quite intriguing. I didn't really know what it meant, if I'm honest, when I started. Um, But the more I um, worked on that section and edited articles and, and brought people in to write for the magazine. I had this really kind of, um, I guess, cross-section sense of all the different ways that people approach place, mm. um, whether that's physically, whether that's emotionally, whether that's nostalgically and in the past, or whether that's perhaps about hope for the future. So I think that was the first time I sort of consciously started thinking about it. And then since then, like I say, I'm now back in Devon. I work a lot with local communities and and I'm fascinated in the kind of connection between people and place. That's something we'll come on to. And also when I think about place, and I've touched on this before, but I think of Zambia in Southern Africa. I lived there for a time and, it, you know, obviously that's not somewhere that I grew up, but I have this really strong sense of place and connection to Zambia. Um, I don't have a home there, um, but it, I find that a really interesting insight too into what how place can sort of go deep personally, even though, you know, I didn't have that kind of growing up connection. Um, and it's a different sense of place to what I feel in Devon. Mm. So that's what came up for me initially when I thought of the word place. What about you, Katrina? How do you um, come into this topic? I guess it's, it's almost like your last point a bit. Um I guess somewhere, you know, when I think about place, again, think of many things, but Scotland feels important. Mm. Um, Even though clearly with my accent, I grew up in England, uh, went to school in England um, and have had an English father. Uh, My mother's Scottish. And I always find, you know, when we're driving back up to Scotland, my husband's also part Scottish as well, or he would say fully Scottish, actually, sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's something about... um, the hills and the mountains as you get kind of past the border that they're just imbued with this these kind of gorgeous colors and kind of, I don't know, mysticism and sense of, I don't know, time. And I really feel it very deeply and strongly, even though, you know, I'm not fully Scottish and, and didn't grow up there. And it, it also reminds me of um, a place uh, on the Mall of Kintyre where we've spent a lot of time over the last kind of 15, 16 years. Um, and, I had a, a really lovely moment um, early this summer, which I actually wrote about in, in our unfurling Facebook group. 
um, at the time, uh, but I'll bring it up here is um, when we were up there, uh, my dad and I, you know, often would go for a little sit outside the church because um, it was just a, a really nice place to hang out really. And we'd have some deep and meaningfuls. And after he died seven years ago, I, you know, I'd, I always like to, to go there by myself each visit and just kind of have a little sit down. And um, this time around with COVID, the, the church has been closed and the gate was not only shut, but kind of really jammed shut. Like there was no way to pull it open. And I thought about hopping over the, the walls, but I thought then the neighbors would see and my good girl kind of kicked in, <laughs> so I didn't. And uh, what I realized was that, you know, it wasn't all about that actual seat that I needed to sit in. There was something about just being in the vicinity and it's reconnecting with what that place means to me. So in terms of, of those conversations with my dad and in that moment, and this sounds very cheesy, but it was very beautiful. There were these, I, I noticed in the, the gate itself, there were these really small little um, ferns that were literally unfurling. And so I almost saw it as like a pointer, you know, that this gate is closed and yet it's things aren't closing down. Like there are new opportunities and new ways, you know, that are coming forward. So, yeah, I think, I mean, that's just one of many, but that's one that feels important. And I, I, I bring it up also um, one of our, our dear family friends, um, Catherine, um, who lives uh, or lived in, in Kintyre, um, died last week. She's in my mind today um, mm. and her family too. So um, perhaps that's why it's on my mind. Mm. Yeah, and that makes me think too, as you talk about your family friend, Catherine, just the role that people can play in mm. our sense of place and our sense of belonging and, and home for some people. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we might pick up on that in this episode, but I guess it's easy to think of place quite geographically mm. and almost, sort of, yeah, quite black and white. But I think it's really, you know, you used, when you were talking about Scotland, you used the word mysticism, human um, constructions really but how they're so intertwined with place I think that's really important to to think about so when we thought about um definitions of place because we often start as as you may um know by now with the the dictionary corner as it's become known um but actually that was quite hard to do with place because there are so many different definitions depending on you know what what depending on your starting point you know place in architecture means something quite different to place in geography or in mm. um poetry um but so we thought we'd spend just a short time beginning to maybe open up some of those definitions and and i think katrina we both were reading something weren't we from the national geographic mm, yeah. um do you want to pick up on that and some of the other things you were talking about Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, in the past, I've been using uh, my trusted Cambridge dictionary, but um, there are loads of different definitions for place and, and they're quite dry. You know, things like an area, town, building, the seat you will sit on on a particular <laughs> occasion, you know, mm. like in a train. And I was just like, no, this is not this is not mm. what I'm, I think we're getting at here. So um, I did have a look around and what I, yeah, I like the National Geographic. They talk about um, place actually being one of the oldest tenets of geography. Um, and as a result, it's got many definitions, you know, whether that's a space or location with meaning. So as you were touching on earlier, um, through to more complex ideas like an area having unique physical and human characteristics interconnected with other places. So it's not just the actual kind of 
physical place and the meaning attached to that, but it's how does that relate to other spaces? So it can get quite big, this idea of place. But what I, I liked was a kind of simplicity that they had in talking about the kind of components of it. So the first being location, um, which is the position of a particular point on the surface of the earth. So pretty geographical in nature. The second being locale as being the physical setting for relationships between people. For example, the south of France or the Smoky Mountains. Um, for me, that I would want to extend that definition a bit to, or you know, component to um, the physical setting for relationships between people, you know, animals, the natural world. It feels like it's it, there's more to it than that. But I think that locale feels important. And then finally, that that sense of place, which you've already alluded to, Elizabeth, you know, um, about being the emotions that someone attaches to an area based on their experiences. So we've got the kind of purely geographical, we've got the place where dynamics and relationships can happen and we've got the emotional setting. And just a couple of other things to bring in and then I'll pass back over to you, Elizabeth. Um, the National Geographic was talking about was that, you know, place can be applied to any scale. So it could be that that bench or that seat that I was talking about through to a whole country, you know, or even bigger. And it doesn't have to be fixed in either time or space. And as you alluded to earlier, so it's um, can be part of our memories, can be part of our imagination and can be in the here and now. And just a couple of other things to bring in, um, you know, with globalization, place can change over time, you know, as its physical setting and cultures are influenced by new ideas or technologies. Um, and so sometimes we will have attachments to places where, you know, we haven't even been you know, um, but we've seen maybe on TV. Um, so it's, as you can see, it can be, we can view this in a very simplistic way, we can view this in a very complex way. But to me, I feel, as for all that I read, this kind of summed up some of the things we want to look at today best. Mm. Yeah, and I guess if we're, you know, we're, we're kind of use those ideas of location, locale, and the emotions, you know, as we kind of weave through this podcast. And yeah, I guess location, you know, the position of a particular point on the surface of the earth is is very precise. And it makes me think of how do we kind of place ourselves within that? You know, how do we essentially map out where we are and navigate? And it, it brings up, yeah, that kind of looking back at humanity and how people use the stars and some, you know, still do, you know, to kind of uh, work out where to walk, where to sail. And just the progression or maybe not progression, but development let's say of you know from that through to creating maps um using compasses um creating google maps um and even um something i came across a while back but reminded myself of today was it's called what to three words uh there's a ted talk which i'll, I'll link uh to in the, the show notes but um essentially what three words is um a concept where um they divide the world into three meter squares and give each square a unique combination of three words. And it's particularly helpful um, in places that there aren't precise locations, you know, that there aren't necessary building entrances or, you know, for example, with parks or many more rural areas, um, which makes it hard to find places and prevents people from describing exactly where help is needed in an emergency, for example. I know that Kat in the past we've talked quite a bit about navigation and maps mm. and the kind of I guess metaphorical ways of thinking about 
um, location and finding ourselves and navigating life. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of maps. In fact, as I record this, I'm, I'm looking up now and looking at a big OS ordnance survey map on of our kind of surrounding area in Devon, which is great for going for walks and things. I'm also, as I as I look um, in front of me, um, though it isn't on the map I'm looking at, I, I know that around um, here there are some big AONBs. So these are areas mm. of outstanding natural beauty. Um, these are spaces in the UK and just it's a definition I'll just read out. So AONBs are designated exceptional landscapes. Mm. Distinctive character and natural beauty are precious enough to be safeguarded in the national interest. AONBs are protected and enhanced for nature, people, business, and culture. Obviously, we, you know, in different countries, we have national parks, um, other sort of similar protected spaces. But the concept of an area of outstanding natural beauty, just think it's a really interesting way of thinking about location and how we protect certain locations and, you know, what makes a location or a landscape special enough to be protected so that, Mm. you know, development can't happen and and in that definition the kind of coming together of nature people business and culture you know often national parks I think are sort of their focus is about conserving um, the natural world or protecting the natural world Um, people might enjoy that through recreation and leisure but it's it's first and foremost about the sort of landscape and the nature whereas AONBs you have this kind of fusion of different uh priorities i guess um and it's about how do those things exist together in harmony mm-hmm. in a space that has distinctive character and beauty i love the idea of bringing in beauty to mm-hmm. to landscape and location so i think we're really lucky um in the uk to have um i think it's close to 50 um areas of outstanding mm-hmm. natural beauty yeah it, it just that really jumped out at me as, as a way of thinking about the kind of different layers of location um, and how we mm. and how we value those things. I also think you know we, you you spoke then about um, stars and maps and what three words and, and I guess all all of that makes me think about um, these as tools to find ourselves and locate ourselves. And I suppose the opposite of that is losing ourselves and getting lost. When I think of getting lost, I think of physically getting lost, or perhaps maybe more emotionally or, or, or mentally feeling a bit lost with our own life or in, in kind of our global collective life. And that made me think of a, a, a book published by um, an American author, Rebecca Solnit. Um, she wrote a book um, called A Field Guide to Getting Lost. I think it was published in the early 2000s. And she talks about, I suppose, the idea of being lost there is something we can benefit from there is something to um to learn by getting lost so it doesn't have to be a problem it can be an opportunity or something to be learned from or um a a way to grow she talks i think i I remember one part of the book she was talking about horses um and how um horses are kind of pack animals uh and often you know you can be riding a horse and if that horse sees um, his friend, a horsey friend of his, um, a little way away, he, they'll kind of call to each other because the, the concept of um, another animal, animal kind of coming into their field of view and then disappearing again, it, it can make them feel quite unnerved. And I vividly remember this this image of um, horses feeling a togetherness and feeling um, like they're belonging when they are with others, when they're with other horses um, and when they're in that pack. 
Yeah, I just I just mentioned that just because when I think of place and, and location and finding ourselves, I think of being lost as well. There is something at the moment about if we're feeling lost, um, how do we find our way home again? What does loss mean for us? And what does home mean for us? How do we re-navigate to, to, to find ourselves again? It almost feels like that's kind of touching on that next layer. Yes, yeah, so locale, which is the physical setting for relationships between people. Yeah, I guess what I when you talked about feeling lost and how do you get back from that or, or move forward from that, for me, there is something about bringing people into that equation. I actually asked my husband at lunch today, you know, when I mentioned the word place, what does that bring up for him? And, you know, what is what is place for him? And he talked about the idea of home. Then he kind of like cheekily said, well, it's wherever you are, Katrina. <laughs> I think there's something, you know, as, as we bring in people, as we bring in other animals, the natural world into some of this, you know, place creation or, you know, making, um, that's where the meaning starts to really come alive also referring back to um rebecca solnit's a field guide to getting lost which i touched on earlier um she does speak about i just pulled up a quote um as we were speaking she talks about um this in a quite an interesting way when she's thinking about nomads and she says um nomads contrary to current popular imagination have fixed circuits and stable relationships to places they're far from being the drifters and dharma bums that the word nomad often connotates nowadays i think that's quite interesting you know though they seem to be moving and they maybe don't have a fixed location they do have a relationship to place and certainly to each other um so that kind of placing themselves in a wider landscape, even if it's not one specific place, feels um, mm. quite important. Yeah, and I think that's important to remember as, you know, well, certainly I'm, I'm here speaking in London, which is a very urban environment. Um, mm. And actually, there, there are absolutely so many different ways to, to view and interact with the concept of place. Mm. So yeah, Elizabeth, as you mentioned the kind of a nomadic way of being it, it makes me think of the animal kingdom a bit and you know the idea of um yeah navigating but but returning home um and there's a, a kind of concept called natal homing um which is the process by which some adult animals return to their birthplace in order to reproduce mm. um primarily it's seen amongst aquatic animals such as sea turtles um, and pacific salmon um, and it's thought that um, geomagnetic imprinting and olfactory cues are used to, to enable this. And, and really what's thought of is that by returning to a precise location of birth, it may be largely associated with safety and suitability as a breeding ground. So, for example, um, when the Atlantic puffin returns to their natal breeding colony, um, which are typically on islands, uh, they can be assured of a suitable climate um, and sufficient lack of land-based predators. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea that in a way there's something in us that sometimes calls us home or, or to a place or to a feeling or a sense of place. And yet this is also mirrored in the natural world um, and associated with evolutionary advantage, you know, for survival as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, so it's almost it's kind of imprinted deep in our DNA, um, that kind of instinct mm. almost. It makes, it makes me kind of wonder, you know, I don't know 
anything really about this, but the idea of you know geomagnetic imprinting, like I mentioned going up to Scotland, or I know like you've mentioned in certain parts of Devon, you may feel this, you know, that there some bits have more a stronger mm-hmm. pull, you know, and others might more repel. Um, and I don't know anything about this, but it's just interesting to think about how we as humans can be affected as well. Yeah, and, and, and often in, in such a inarticulate inarticulable is that a word in, in a way that we can't articulate you know it's, it's a feeling and it's something that can kind of bubble inside us as a as a vague sense more than it ever can be kind of distilled down into words and I think you know what is that inside us is that us tapping into yeah you know whatever the magnetism of the earth or water or or something or is it actually something more mystical you used the word mysticism earlier is it something mm. that we'll never actually be able to understand and articulate um there was a study um i think from 2017 it was a study by the national trust which is a um, uk organization um and the study was called places that make us and in this work they kind of looked at the neural responses to uh place and found mm. that there are neural underpinnings in our need for place and they found um a sort of strong scientific basis for the correlation between Um, meaningful places um, and positive emotion through MRI mapping they found that significant places spark a greater emotional resonance in people than personally valued objects so you know in a kind of quite material culture um, where gaining and having and owning and buying and acquiring are seen as things that we just do or in you know some parts of the world that that's seen as something that we aspire to the scientific basis of the importance of place actually to our emotional well-being i think it's really fascinating and it's not you know it's not quite the same as what you're talking about in terms of that pull back to birthing grounds but there is something uh, neurological there in our attachment to um meaningful place i thought it was quite interesting particularly when we think about you know the erosion of 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 certain places you know whether it's green spaces or um national parks or habitat loss really for for some species the amazon rainforest on a big scale or perhaps a little valued local green park on a smaller scale as as the kind of erosion of a lot of places is happening in the world how how is that affecting our neurology and our well-being absolutely it's um and it's also kind of which yeah which places are we choosing to connect with you know it might not be natal homing for some mm. people that might not be the place of 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 resonance or support it might be later in life yeah and i guess something that's popping into my head is um yeah kind of both that movement that you you know you've talked about and the, the changing emotions connected with that and and but also it brings up for me um thinking about endemic species mm whether that's plants, animals, um, you know, for example, Madagascar, the lemurs as one example. And I'm kind of curious about what that points to and that what we can learn, because in some ways, you know, if you've got an endemic species, what that means is it's, it's in one particular area and isn't found elsewhere in the world. And what does that point to in terms of that uniqueness of environment that, you know, either by choice or, you know, they, that animal, that kind of plant is staying there. And I guess, also, what is it pointing to in terms of limitations and boundaries? You know, so with Madagascar, for example, it's an island, you know, and, and I guess why hasn't the lemur gone further than that? But, you know, beyond the sea, because obviously some creatures do. So there's something about limitations of being in one place, um, whether that's deforestation that is causing um, pockets 
you know, of endemic species to kind of, you know, have to stay in one real small location. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's just popping up for me, mm. you know, that the, the kind of pros and cons of being in a in a, a small place, one that may really suit you and yet one that you may be limited by as well. Yeah, that makes me think of various things. As you say, that the, there must be a reason why certain species exist in certain places either they've been forced to through habitat loss or they're just most suited to that place it makes me think um amongst other things about human communities as well you know and and people that have lived Mm. in a place for tens hundreds thousands of years sometimes and about kind of recognizing the the uniqueness and the the deep knowledge they might have of place Um, so there's something about um, really valuing local communities uh, and the mm. knowledge and wisdom that they have that is different to the knowledge and wisdom of outside communities. And as I think a little bit about kind of local politics, this is something I'm involved in. And I think about sort of central government versus more, uh, you know, more sort of decentralized decision making. I think actually um, recognizing the, the strengths and, and deep knowledge of local people when it comes to making decisions about, for example, development or you know protecting the land. I think it's really important, which also makes me think of rewilding, um, which is something I think we've touched on before. This is the idea of restoring um, places in the UK and around the world to earlier states. So, you know, that might be bringing back lynx or um, beavers and, and certain plants and things that maybe haven't existed in that place for hundreds or thousands of years and to let the land go a bit wild again. You know, it's 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 an important idea. We need to be protecting and restoring the natural world. But I also see some of the challenges it poses for, you know, local farmers, perhaps, or um, local communities who are having this um, concept of rewilding, perhaps sort of forced on place, like I think of the Lake District. And there are sort of hill farmers there that I know, sheep farmers who agree with the principles of rewilding and restoring nature, but actually think that the kind of some of the the maybe people that are coming up with this um concept are outsiders or you know people from the cities mm. who maybe just don't understand their own knowledge of of the place and actually why perhaps rewilding isn't suitable for that place so it sort of makes me think of you know r- restoring and protecting the natural world and looking after endemic species um that might be suited to a place it sort of has to go hand in hand with restoring and valuing um, human communities as well Mm. and human uh, knowledge of particular places and love of particular places as well you know the word when we were um, thinking about this episode the word topophilia kept popping up and that is Mm. from the greek topos which means place and philia which means love so it's the love of place and it can often become you know, it can be love of the natural world, but it can often get mixed with sort of cultural identity and, you know, memory and and other aspects of a place. And it can be unique to everyone. Mm. So I think there's something about protecting people, often ancient people, um, but also, you know, communities. It does go hand in hand with protecting and conserving the natural world. And I think it's very hard to do one without the other. Or certainly that's how I see it at the moment from where I sit. Yeah, absolutely. And we we referenced um, Survival International's work um, with Indigenous and tribal peoples in a previous episode, I think, on mm. health. Um, and I'll put a link to that mm. uh, in, the, in the show notes. But yeah, hearing that, what, what comes up for me is um, there's something here about 
also bridging, which I know is something that both you and I feel quite passionately mm-hmm. about, you know, so, you know, where is the common ground? You know, as we think about protecting and respecting different peoples, it's, um, you know, what do we do when we have a shared love of place and yet very different politics, for example, and I'm thinking about, you know, what's going on in America at the moment. We don't know what the result is and, and people are clearly very passionate on both sides. And there's something for me in that example and the examples you were talking about is, is how can we genuinely build connection through, through really active listening and wanting to, to understand mm. um, so that we can move forward, you know, it sounds cheesy, but better together. You mm. know? Yeah. I think recognizing that, you know, you can have, 10 people all being in one particular place or living in one place, but they all might have completely different relationships to that place. So as you say, it's about Mm. how do we listen to each of those stories and recognize the truth in all of them um, and think big picture long-term, find the common ground, recognizing that, you know, ultimately a lot of the values, you know, whichever way um, we vote or whichever way we we're inclined to, to kind of align ourselves is there are usually often very similar values of you know Mm. family or home or whatever it might be so it's kind of exploring those those themes that run through all of our stories of place and home and belonging and yeah finding the common ground yeah and that that piece about home feels important um you know how that ties in with with place Mm. and because in some ways when I think of place, I, I do think of a sense of home. And I've got a couple of quotations just to share that, you know, so one about nature. So mm. by Gary Snyder, that nature is not a place to visit. It is home. Mm. So again, it's trying to avoid that separation that I think it's easy for, for all of us to do, mm. you know, um, na- nature and city or nature and us, but actually um, it's it's home. And yet I also came across uh yeah like an interesting um idea from from john muir about home as well that few places in this world are more dangerous than home Mm. fear not therefore to try the mountain passes they will kill care save you from deadly apathy set you free and call forth every faculty into vigorous enthusiastic action wow that's a powerful quote isn't it yeah. yeah, it um, I can. It makes me think of adventure and having cobwebs blown mm. away and being out in the world and um, mm. maybe not sort of. Yeah, it makes me self-reflect. Really, you know, I'm really quite a home bunny. I like the sanctuary of home. I like closing the door and shutting the curtains and feeling safe and sort of snuggled up. But I also love being out on a windswept moor or on that mountain pass or whatever it might be, and kind of you know, recognizing that both of them are probably helpful. There's another, speaking of John Muir, there's another quote I came across from him, which um, I may have mentioned before, but he said, um, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown for going out, I found was really going in. Um, And the idea Mm. of going out actually as a kind of path back to deeper understanding of ourselves Mm. and each other and, which makes me then think as we talk about home is home obviously physical house can can be a home though not for everyone but how do we find home or reclaim home or a sense of home Mm. when 
we might be out, you know, when we might not have physically four walls around us, when it's just us or us and our relationships. Is home mm. always a place? Is it is it something else? And that, that feels really timely today because in the UK we, we're on day one of our second lockdown, national mm. lockdown, um, or at least English lockdown. Um, and there's obviously questions that arise you know, personally and as a family about how do we exist and, you know, what is a more limited space and, and place, but also it takes me back to the, to those early months of the first lockdown when we were amazed to see, you know, animals um, almost like coming home or um, going into cities or where perhaps they haven't felt able to because of cars and noise and humans that could be threatening. And um, I was doing a bit of reading about this again and, you know, seeing photos of um, lions um, napping in the middle of, you know, an empty road in Kruger National Park or monkeys in alleyways of shops that were closed. Um, and I, I remember at the time in, in Wales, herds of wild mountain goats uh, in the empty streets of Cladidno. Um, so there's something, it, it, yeah, it feels kind of particularly interesting thinking about place and also that kind of the artificial boundaries that we as humans put on that. Um, so I remember when I was doing some research into this topic, A, it was difficult because place is used in so many different contexts as a verb and different ways mm. as well. So it was quite challenging. Um, but I noticed that with with animals, which so I'm always keen to kind of see what we can learn from, you know, uh, the more kind of natural world. I noticed that place in animals isn't used hugely um, it's more kind of habitat, ecosystem, territory, you know. Um, and there is a bit of a, an arm of what's called animal geography coming up, which is taking more of that into consideration and, and thinking about place as, as one aspect of that. Yeah, it just makes me think, just because we don't know the answer as to how attached emotionally animals may be to a particular place doesn't mean that that doesn't happen, you know. Mm. It makes me think of the um, children's film from the 90s, I think, called Homeward Bound, where I think a family went on holiday and they took their two dogs and pet cat with them. Yes. And then they went home and forgot them or something. I can't remember how it happened. Yes. And the, the dogs and the cat had to make this epic journey across Canada or somewhere um, to get home. And they were, I know that, anyway, I mean, these were talking animals and, and so on, but it was, they, you know, there is this pull to, maybe they were pulled back more to their family than actually a, a house mm, yeah it's like yeah it's like gray Friars bobby up in scotland you know the the dog that would just stay by his owner's mm. grave um until until he died mm. and um so that sense of place you know it's important it reminds me also of the march of the penguins um you know that documentary um about emperor mm. penguins you know um or the south pole journeying back to their their breeding mm. grounds and um yeah, the photography was amazing, but also just some of the, um, yeah, the different relationships, you know, you can witness in that documentary. It's well worth a, a look. And what it brings up in me is what is that sense of place in animals that are in farms or zoos, you know, that would not traditionally have been like that? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just um, reminded me of, we've referenced him before, but Wendell Berry, who's a farmer and author and poet, um, he says that there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. This is a line from a poem of his called How to Be a Poet. Yeah, just the idea of place and, and 
how we protect animals and people and the place itself, you know, sacred spaces and sacred places. Often that can be yeah, personal or sort of more collectively felt. And in fact, there is a term, I think it's a Roman term, um, uh, genius loci, which means the protective mm. spirit of a place. So I think this has been a full episode, Kat, and there's lots more we no doubt could have mentioned. And I'm sure we will, mm. um, you know, as, as the as unfurling continues to unfurl. Um, but for now, yep. as we think about coming to an end um, and a couple of questions maybe to leave our listeners with, obviously, place can mean completely different things to different people. And that's and that's absolutely fine and how it should be. So I guess we'd encourage you to think a bit about what place does mean to you. Is it a physical place, location, like we were talking about earlier? Is it a location that you can define and point to? and that you maybe have been involved in conserving, protecting, or you want to do so? Um, or is, is place more about relationships for you and people and the spirit of a place and culture? So we'd invite you to explore what place means to you. And thinking back to, so earlier on, I referenced the um, areas of outstanding natural beauty designation in the UK, AONBs. Um, these are protected and enhanced spaces for nature, people, business, and culture. So we'd also invite you to Think about those four elements, nature, people, business, culture. How in your exploration of place could you be perhaps um, contributing to those things and protecting, enhancing or even reclaiming those things so that place can, can be healthy for everyone and it can thrive in lots of different ways for lots of different people. Mm. So, yeah, just to have fun with that or, or see what comes up for you. And we'd be really interested to hear what does come up for you. So with that, I think we're coming to an end. Is that right? Yeah, Elizabeth? that feels about right. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to uh, continue the conversation, uh, either jump into or join the uh, Facebook group that we have, which is called Unfurling Podcast. You're very welcome there. It's a, a nice international community of people. And with that... I think that's us done for the next couple of weeks, Elizabeth. Yeah, it is. These, the weeks are whizzing. Um, so no doubt we'll see you all again soon. Absolutely. So for those of you in lockdown, we, we wish you a peaceful experience mm. with it. Um, for those of you in the States, we wish you peace with that as well. Um, in fact, I'm just in a peaceful mood. I wish whoever's listening to this lots of peace um, and a, a healthy, happy sense of, of mm. place. So with that, thank you for listening to Unfurling a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire.